Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you're the kind of person who listens to this show, you probably already know that the side that declared itself as fighting for states' rights and personal white male liberty was also the first to pass a conscription law, drafting almost every white male of military age into national service. What you might not know was just how many other contradictions and controversies were intertwined with the passage and enforcement of conscription in the Confederacy. I didn't until I read Confederate Conscription and the Struggle for Southern Soldiers. We'll talk with the author, John M. Satcher, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from our usual location on the third floor of the Brewster Building in Sunlit Greenville, North Carolina. It is March 29th of 2023. Daylight savings time has kicked in. It's still light out. But even though I'm sitting in an office on the campus of ECU, I am not speaking for ECU or uh, East Carolina University or anything you want to call it, nor will my guest speak for anything but himself, as we always do here. Well, it is the spring of 23. Uh, baseball, Major League Baseball starting pretty soon. College baseball well underway, and the ECU Pirates uh, swept another series last weekend. Uh, they, they lost a the game last night. They don't do well midweek, but they have moved up to number eight in the national rankings. So if there's one sport where ECU is not deficient, it would be baseball, and it's, it's just fun to watch. My alma mater, University of Michigan, is in the Frozen Four in ice hockey, so all kinds of good college sports. The sport most people talk about this time of year, college basketball, uh, two things really seem different this year. One is that uh, who on earth are these final four teams? Uh, how did they get there? Nobody knows. Uh, 
and secondly, the women's tournament is getting uh, a, a decent share of attention because there are such interesting players and teams compared to past years. Uh, the, the balance and coverage between uh, men and women is, is changing uh, somewhat for both of those reasons, the, the lack of a marquee team on the men's side and some really amazing players on the women's side. But I'm just watching baseball. Here at ECU, before I go any further, let me say congratulations to my colleague, Timothy Jenks, who has been offered the chair of our department here at ECU. He was the interim chair. We had a national search. We brought in some, uh, I, I thought, really uh, well-qualified candidates from other schools around the country. And it was reassuring, I would say, to see that our homegrown talent matched up, rose to the occasion, and uh, that our dean uh, thinks our, our current colleague merits the, the full chair position, and I know he's going to do a good job. Uh, in other local education and Civil War-related news, I mentioned last week how our state legislators have decided are uh, trying to pass a law that everyone has to take an American history course to graduate, which on the one hand would be great, but they also want to design the course themselves. They've specified what the curriculum will be. Uh, they've given a list of documents that must be in it, including five of the Federalist paper essays. I'm not sure I've read five Federalist essays since grad school, but I'll, I'll, I'll do that if I need to. Uh, but the law also says there must be an exam worth at least 20% based on the named documents. When this was read aloud at our department meeting Monday, one of my colleagues said, and is the legislature going to grade the exams for us? Uh, because they certainly seem to want to organize the course uh, pretty in, in pretty great detail otherwise. And while it's not, the, the course isn't a terrible idea, the, people have uh, grounding in certain American history documents, I'd prefer that they be chosen by professionals rather than amateur pseudo-historians who happen to have gotten elected. But it's very distressing that the principle of faculty government and governance is being trampled on, that the curriculum is not the administration's prerogative uh, in any department. You don't want anyone but trained medical doctors deciding how to train other doctors. You don't want car salesmen who got elected to the legislature making medical decisions uh, or engineering decisions, building bridges for us to drive over or anything else that requires actual training. And the same, I would argue, applies to history. But but wait, there's more. Uh, another bill has come up. This one is aimed at high school teachers that says they must not do anything, teach anything that causes, and I'll quote, uh, any individual solely by virtue of his race, his or her race or sex, uh, that they should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress. This, this is a mystery. I mean, when I'm reading about Spanish Inquisition, Pol Pot's killing fields, Stalin's Katyn massacre, Auschwitz, or to bring it home here, Andersonville or Fort Pillow, I feel anguish. I feel discomfort for the victims of these these horrors. But apparently we're supposed to be able to teach them without making people feel uncomfortable. That, I'm not sure how to do. Um, now, if the idea that I one could teach the Middle Passage, the horrors of the Middle Passage, 
without an African-American student feeling bad for their ancestors' suffering, how would you do that? And why would you want them not to feel empathy for, for what their ancestors went through? But of course, that's not the point of the law. The point is actually to prevent the white classmate from not feeling bad, uh, from feeling bad about what his black classmates' ancestors went through, as if somehow the two current people had any responsibility for what happened 200, 400 years ago. Um, that's, that's the, it, both students ought to feel bad about bad things that happened. And, and there's a meme I use in, in a lot of classes in the first day that says if you study history, you're going to feel uncomfortable. If you study history, you're going to feel angry. And sometimes you're going to feel uh, upset. And, and, and if you don't, if all you feel is proud and happy when you're studying history, you're not studying history. So that, that this law is going to be a problem uh, uh, if it comes to pass. But hopefully we'll see what happens. Uh, back to happier things, you can come along and uh, study history for yourself in circumstances that I guarantee you will at times make you think. I won't say they will upset you or cause you anguish, but if you can walk through the National Cemetery at Gettysburg and not feel some sense of empathy for the the people who laid down their lives, then I don't get you. Uh, and you can do that. You can walk through that cemetery, and you can walk across Pickett's Charge with the Stephen Ambrose historical tours, uh, uh, travel opportunities, this hallowed ground in May and October of this year. I think the May trip may be close to sold out, but October is still available. And you can also go back to Gettysburg in June for the Civil War Institute, CWI. Check that out and get uh, a 15% discount by telling them that you listen to the show. And uh, we, to wrap up our news for the week, don't forget while you're at uh, the website, impedimentsofwar.org, to see who's going to be on next week and the weeks after. Next week, it's Bruce Chadwick with his book, The Cannon's Roar, Fort Sumter, and the Start of the Civil War, an Oral History. On the 12th of May, Faye Yar, 12th of April, sorry, uh, Faye Yarbrough and Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. On the 19th, we will celebrate show number 600 of Civil War Talk Radio with our old friend Harold Holzer, and you know who he is. On the 26th of April, Jessica Zapparo, this grand experiment when women entered the federal workforce in Civil War era D.C. And then John Avlon on the 3rd of May. And on the 10th of May, Ty Sedgley, Robert E. Lee, and me, a Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Many of you have requested him on the show and finally got him. So, 600 shows almost coming up. While you're at Impediments of War, be sure to click on the PayPal button. And donate any amount you choose. Uh, a good round number would be $30 for access to all 600 shows. Uh, alternatively, uh, another good donation would be uh, $5 a month. Then after six months, you've donated $30 for all 600 shows. And six months from now, $5 a month with inflation will be so minimal you won't even notice it. Uh, and finally, there's also the good-for-nothing plan. Just keep writing on the backs of your dedicated fellow listeners. Don't give anything. Uh, and when I say dedicated fellow listeners, I'm talking about people like uh, Gary Van Cowenberg, whose donation this past week was the one that headed off 
the necessity of my recitation of the entirety of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Samuel T. Coleridge, uh, with a donation request in the final stanza. I don't have to do that because he came through first. Uh, you can be the next hero. Donate uh, to Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight, we are talking with John Satcher, author of Confederate Conscription and the Struggle for Southern Soldiers. Professor Satcher, are you there? I'm here, and if you don't want to talk about conscription, I'd be happy to talk about college sports, chair searches, or states' interference in uh, education. Well, <laughs> All topics dear to my heart. <laughs> you're, you're at the University of Central Florida, so uh, absolutely. You've, you've got uh, state interference with education. Uh, you've got a team, you've got a school that's moving to the Big 12. You were in the same conference as ECU, and every time ECU moves up, we get out of Conference USA, we get into something decent like the American, play teams like yours, and then you guys move on to a bigger conference. Yes, as of July 1st, we joined the Big 12, but uh, you get FAU, and uh, they're having a pretty good uh, march down there, so you replace Boy, it with something pretty good. Oh, that's true. We're getting a Final Four team in basketball, and, and ECU is not good in basketball. We, we try, but... Uh, but hey, baseball's number eight. We're doing all right. Uh, yeah, so many things we do have in common there. Um, and and uh, did, how long have you been at uh, at UCF? I've been at UCF since two thousand six. Okay. I, as I was reading your book, I was I had just finished reading some. Uh, 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 I don't want to name any names. I have to be very careful. Uh, some graduate thesis drafts. Uh, uh, we have an MA program. We don't have a doctoral program here. But the the difference in tone of confidence in your writing compared even to, to, to published monographs that, that are clearly someone's uh, dissertation that they've turned into a monograph, uh, there's still that sense they're, they're trying to prove something. They're beating that thesis like a rented mule. They're, they're, they're repeating themselves to get the page count up. And then to read your confident uh, uh, style, I just I just enjoyed this book so much that you knew what you had to say and you went and said it, and it was great. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it, writing it. It took a it, long time. <laughs> well, it took. It, you said it took twenty years in the introduction. Well, yeah. I mean, I was still finishing my dissertation project. I did turn into a book when I first started getting interested in this topic, um, and then I went to uh, one university, got married, had kids, had a bunch of administrative jobs. Um, but really, all the blame goes to me. It just it took a long time, um, but I think it was worth it. So what? So you, what first got you into this topic? Well, it's, it's kind of a humorous story. Uh, back in the 1990s, I was in my major professor's office, Bill Cooper. Um, mm -hmm. And back then in the 90s, you probably remember this, that you know, uh, presses used to send books to faculty members. And yeah. so he'd get books and he'd give them to graduate students because his bookshelves were full. And one day he gave me a copy of Albert Borden Moore's 1924 book on conscription, which was reissued in 1996. Um, and when he gave it to me, I had no interest in conscription, but I figured it was an unwritten rule that you never turn down a free book because no. you never, might never get one again. So <laughs> I took it. <laughs> it's out of my shelf for a while. I stared at it. One day I picked it up and I decided, you know, no offense to Mr. Moore, Dr. Moore, um, his book needed to be redone. And, and I think it's very good for what it was in 1924. But uh, <laughs> for anybody interested in the Civil War to think that a topic has gone almost 100 years without a major work being published on, it's a little bit surprising. Um, and obviously, historiography has changed, and the questions we ask have changed dramatically in that time period. 
Well, that that's true. It is it, certainly a hundred years is a long time to go, and it is also remarkable how uh, on this show every week somebody I get to talk to has written a book on a topic that you think, why hasn't that been done before? What a great idea! Um, and this is is one of those. Well, let me start with just the the uh, let's start with the spoilers. Start with the last question in the book, practically, um, and and we'll just. Add, Let's do it this way. I'll ask this question. We'll take a break so you can think about it, and we'll come back with with, with your answer. The question is, um, in contrast to what most people have written about conscription, uh, to the extent they have written about it in the last hundred years, uh, they say it, it was the fatal flaw of the Confederacy. It contradicted everything the Confederacy stood for, and it really brought about, through internal dissension, the defeat of the Confederacy. You don't say that. You don't agree with that. Is that is that a fair that summary? That's a 100%, 100% fair assessment. And I'll have a much longer answer on the other side of break if you'd like me to. Um, Let, let's, do, let's do that. Let's take a break uh, a minute early now. Uh, uh, and we'll come right back and talk with our guest tonight. John M. Satcher is the author of Confederate Conscription and the Struggle for Southern Soldiers. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John M. Satcher, author of Confederate Conscription and the Struggle for Southern Soldiers. So, as we left off just before the break, uh, it, is it a fair summary of the, the historiography to say that? Uh, historians have not been kind to the conception or execution of Confederate conscription. 100%. And if I was to write a book that was looking for internal reasons for uh, Confederate defeat, 
I would use conscription as well. If you think about the main reasons people have used over the last hundred years to explain Confederate defeat from internal causes, you think about states' rights. Well, clearly conscription infringes on states' rights. I mean, you think about it, it interferes with states more so than probably any federal legislation had prior to the Civil War. You think about the idea of a rich man's war, poor man's fight. Well, the provisions that allowed a um, man to provide a substitute or the provision that allowed some of the 20 Negro law, which allowed plantations with 20 or more slaves to have an exemption. These seem to fly right in the face, you know, just rub it basically in the face of non-slaveholders that this is a slaveholders war that they're being forced to fight. Or if you think about people who argue simply that there was a lack of Confederate nationalism, well, one could simply argue that the need for conscription demonstrated that there was a lack of Confederate nationalism. So I certainly see why authors make this argument. But when I approach this, what they really do, I think, is they use, and I don't blame them because everybody does this, they use a simplified version of conscription. They use conscription as sort of a singular, but really conscription is a measure that starts in April of 1862. It's revised several times. And I see it much more of a dialogue or a debate over how to maximize the resources of the Confederacy, which needed to maximize its resources. They needed to precisely balance the amount of men in the army versus the men at home in a way the Union Army didn't have to do. And so to me, conscription serves as a lens to sort of view this debate about what people owed their government or how the government could best defend itself and basically have guns and butter, uh, keep the home front uh, going well and keep the army going strong. Uh, this book was full of little surprises, at least for me. Uh, one of them was, as you say, when conscription is introduced early in, in 1862, uh, even though you know conceptually it seems contradictory to states' rights and so on, it was passed, uh, you, you report, without much fuss. It just it sort of gets passed and, and then the Congress goes home. Yeah, I think the short version is conscription was absolutely necessary in April of 1862. Um, the army, the Confederate army has about 330,000 soldiers, let's say, in April of 1862. Um, 240,000 of those had enlisted in one-year terms. Mm. So they were about to go home in May, June, or July of 1862. Uh, one of the reviewers of my manuscript said, is, is John Satcher saying that the army is going to have less than 100,000 men? And I'm like, no, the Secretary of War was saying that in 1862. So one of the things conscription does, it kept all those men in the army as well. Um, mm. But it, So it's needed. Um, and frankly, somebody like Jefferson Davis, who spent his career in the 1850s being a proponent of states' rights, always argue that he was in favor of states' rights, but he believed the Constitution, both the U.S. Constitution and subsequently the Confederate Constitution, gave Congress the right to raise armies. And to them, the fact that raising armies was without restriction. There was no strict construction. It wasn't calling out the militia. They were raising armies under the provisions of the Constitution, and they said they were doing nothing to infringe on states' rights. So it has both a necessary element in terms of the number of troops, but they believed it was also constitutional. And were some states already using some form of conscription before the national law was passed? Yes. So in that first year, first they're volunteers, then it gets the idea that we need, uh, the Confederacy needs more troops for a longer period of time. Um, and so they do a bounty system to get people enrolled. And in February of 1862, the Confederacy put a quota on the states and it left the method of meeting those quotas up to the states. And so some states used either the conscription or the threat of conscription. I think uh, South Carolina is a good example. They basically <laughs> called on other counties for troops. And in every county except for the county of that host, that house, Charleston, they raised enough volunteers. But in Charleston, they did enact a draft. So, so the idea of, a, of conscription is not entirely new to the Confederacy, but it's 
this is the first time it's been done on a national level in American history. Correct. Um, there was some discussion in various in the American Revolution. Virginia sort of implements a small draft. In the War of 1812, in 1814, the House and Senate both passed conscription measures, but they were sent to a conference committee because they differed. And before mm-hmm. that conference committee met, uh, then the war ended, so they didn't need to use it. So yes, in terms of national conscription, it is the great irony that a nation based on states' rights actually institutes the first national conscription in U.S. history. So what did the first law entail? What do, who was affected by it? Was there any way out? What, what were the details of it? The, the first law impacts men from the ages of 18 to 35. By the end of the war, that will go up to 17 to 50. Um, all versions of the law listed some, ver- some exemptions. Um, those exemptions changed. They first uh, broadened in late uh, 1862 and then narrowed again. So these were essential home front occupations, um, such as, well, they included teachers, they included ministers, they included millers, they included doctors at various times. And in the first law, one of the things that historians reflect on is that the first law provided that men, if you were, were conscripted, which was everyone was conscripted, you could mm-hmm. provide a substitute in your place. Now, the substitute provision, that's, that's an interesting one because that, that goes on through much of the war and uh, the northern draft would eventually have a substitute provision as well. Uh, so how does that work? You just say, you know, hey, you know, Jack, I don't feel like going, you know, you go in my place. Uh, I think sort of at the start. So in April of 1862, um, they passed the they Talk about something that's not debated at all. There was no debate over substitution whatsoever. Some historians talk about it being snuck into the legislation. I think it's there because it's a sort of standard military practice in the 19th century. It sounds terrible to us in the 21st century that you could pay someone to serve your place in the war, um, but that per- and the person might die. But that standard military culture was standard in slave patrols before the Civil War. Um, so what happens, though, is if you are 18 to 35, white male in the Confederacy, and you don't want to go, you need to provide an ineligible man in your place. So generally in the early part of the war, that was a 36-year-old or a 17-year-old or somebody who was a foreigner who was willing to serve in your place. And then you went to the camp of instruction, which is where conscripts gathered, and you provided that man, and he had to pass a medical exam, and then they were admitted to the Army. Um, and essentially they were serving in your place. Now what happens is by the end of 1863, uh, there's such a dire need for men that this Confederacy does end um, end substitution and drafts all the people who have principles, the people who have provided substitutes. So you also, and this was another surprise, soldiers who are in the army, they're already serving in one of Lee's regiments or Bragg's regiments. They could get a substitute to come show up at camp and then they could go home. Yes, um, and some that amazed me. Some officers, li- I mean, obviously the officers don't want that, that's terrible for morale, um, and it's terrible for unit cohesion. So some officially, it was one per month they could do that. Some officers pro- prohibited it entirely. Um, but what it for me, it was great because there are a series of letters then from men in the army to their wives on the home front debating, you know, how much they're going to pay for a substitute, who's going to sell the slaves if they need to sell slaves. And so uh, does, is it patriotic to stay in the army or patriotic to go home? Um, so it provided this great uh, source material for me uh, in looking at how substitution worked and influenced family dynamics. The, well, that brings up the question of sources. I definitely want to ask about that. You point out a number of times here that the uh, 
Confederacy is not the world's greatest record keeper. And, there, and of course, the war itself uh, takes its toll. So where did you get sources to write about this topic? Um, wherever I could. Now, <laughs> I mean, certainly I, I was hoping at, at my initial inclination I was going to get better numbers than Albert Borden Moore done in 1924. And I do get better numbers than he had. But numbers are just not there. I mean, there are some examples of good totals for it, but a lot of those materials have just disappeared. So um, clearly the official records of the War of the Rebellion is always a good source, um, but I used archives in Louisiana, North Carolina, Virginia, Washington, D.C., um, New York. Basically, wherever I could find sources, I used them. Um, and, and people do write about this, and newspapers talked about conscription constantly because it does change throughout the war. It, it is not a mm-hmm. singular It is something that Confederates debated. And, in fact, most people who didn't like conscription consider themselves Confederates as well. So it wasn't really anti-Confederate or wasn't, you know, people who were hostile to the war. Uh, People who consider themselves to be patriots, such as Alexander Stevens, Governor Joe Brown of Georgia, um, they attacked conscription not because they were anti-Confederates, but because they felt conscription was anti-Confederate itself. And, and in principle, certainly they have a strong case to make. And, and you, you talk a lot about how public opinion is divided on this. Now, it, Congress passed the initial conscription law, I said, April 1862, and then they adjourn. Uh, they come back a few months later, and you, you suggest now they take up the issue again, not so much to, to revoke it. There's not been an outcry to get rid of it, but they, they want to fine-tune it. What, what are the kinds of things they need to adjust with it? Well, and I think that's a fine-tuning is a good word. Really, I think from April 1862 to the end of the war, uh, almost no one talks about ending conscription with really a very few exceptions. Uh, when you look at the congressional elections in 1863, which are the Confederates' really only truly ne- elections during the war, uh, candidates who ran for Congress didn't want to get rid of conscription. They just wanted to fine-tune and make sure everybody did their fair share. Things that changed over the course of the war, and the most important or most significant change that changed in October of 1862, well, for one thing, basically, the list of exemptions went from one page to six pages. Um, mm-hmm. You know, People talk about log rolling today. There was certainly some log rolling going on. Uh, the most infamous of those exemptions that comes up in 1862 comes in the wake of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and demands from Southern slaveholders, and that is the 20 Negro Law. And it's impossible to talk about conscription without talking about that. And that's the provision that allows a plantation with 20 or more slaves to have an exemption for one person to serve as an overseer of those slaves. So that was not in the original uh, law. That's added in 1863. Correct. Or late late 62. October 62, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, the, so this is brought in. So there must have been some. I mean, Congress isn't just making this up. There must have been some outcry. And you, you quote some letters of people saying, you know, our, what about our wives and children? Uh, who's going to guard them? Yes. So the, and you think about the, the part of the balancing the home front and the battlefront. And this is one of the reasons the Confederate the Confederacy argues it can have a true conscription because it has a slave labor force which can grow food on the home front. But somebody has to manage that slave labor force. Um, And so the idea is that Congress starts getting letters, and President Davis gets letters, and the Secretary of War gets letters in the summer of 1862. Now, they can detail men to stay at home, but they say, you know, or or a wealthy slaveholder could pay for a substitute, and somebody can manage the slaves there. But we're talking about both fears of slave rebellion, Mm -hmm. rape. Um, growing food. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. As one of the congressmen says, the senator says, you know, it's that 
slave owners don't planters don't get an exemption for an overseer because they're planters they get an exemption for an overseer because the interests of the plantations and the interests of the confederacy coincide so the the opposition uh, you you said it at the outset the the famous line this is a rich man's war but a poor man's fight uh but again this was surprising to read that the the, the 20 negro law as it was so called uh was not strictly a class issue at the start at least there were there were there was division there were people who supported and opposed it uh whether they were slaveholders or not yeah, like everything else, we need to look at things in context. Um, and certainly, I'm not defending <laughs> Confederate conscription or 20 slave, 20 Negro <laughs> no, law. Yeah. But uh, you have to, when you look at an operation, for one thing, let's say if we're talking a plantation is 20 or more slaves, there are about 40,000 plantations in the South in 1860. There are only 4,000 people get exemptions under the 20 Negro law. So to begin with, only 90% of the plantations don't get an exemption. Um, and as the war progressed, the exemptions became tighter and tighter. In 1863, they say you can only get an exemption for someone who had been serving as an overseer before the war. Um, then they limit it to either somebody, the owner has to be in the army or it has to be a woman living by herself. Uh, by 1864, they actually changed the 20 Negro law to the 15 field hand law, figuring that actually equates more to crop production. And then you have to sell produce from your farms to slaveholders' families at a fixed cost. So effectively, they made plantations into government growers. I mean, this is the truly the antithesis of states' rights. I mean, it becomes this, uh, you know, whether you go back and look at... Um, um, books that have argued this sort of socialist state in the Confederacy, uh, you sort of see some of that going on with the 20 Negro law. And now, again, that doesn't mean that didn't, people didn't oppose it and didn't mean mm-hmm. that certainly at glance, perception is reality. So if people believe that was favoring one class or another, it certainly did anger some people. But I don't think it caused this sort of wholesale fissure in Southern society or Confederate society like some historians have argued. Uh, Michael Brem Bonner has been on the show to talk about what you suggested, the, the corporate state mm-hmm. of the Confederacy. And, and, and this is exactly such an example where these, these farms now are essentially growing for the government. The, um, uh, and and the, the, another great detail that, that they change the law where the overseer who gets the exemption must actually be a professional overseer. Uh, you cite the examples when, when there's exemptions for teachers, let's say, suddenly people are raising a hand, oh, I'm a teacher, I, I know how to teach, and, and uh, becoming instant teachers to take advantage of the exemption, and, and they, they clamp down on that. There was another exemption that fascinated me, the, the partisan rangers. When, when, you know, when we read about rangers, we think about Mosby and... Uh, mm-hmm. The, these the great ghost and the these the, these irregular fighters on horseback, uh, but there are partisan ranger units that never leave North Carolina or, or you know Georgia, and they get an exemption. Yes, and partisan rangers that becomes part of the initial act, and at the start it's a giant loophole. I mean, partisan rangers were supposed to be sort of local defense units that serve for very limited time in a very limited area when there's an emergency, almost like a militia being called up. Um, mm-hmm. But when, whenever you create a law, people find loopholes in it all. And you know, when I was doing this research first, I started in Louisiana where I was living. And Louisiana said, Louisiana's government, Governor Thomas Overton Moore looked at the situation of conscription. And conscription said that when you were 
conscripted to the army, you went into one of the existing state units. You did not form new units. You were sort of resupplying those units, mm-hmm. um, which in Louisiana, by May of 1862, there are no Confederate units effectively in, no Louisiana units in Louisiana. So he's like, well, I can't defend my home state. So he started, he's, you know, better to ask for uh, forgiveness than permission. He just starts <laughs> to call for partisan ranger units because he said, that's what we need in Louisiana. We need to protect ourselves. Um, so there's a lot of tension uh, between the Confederate Army and these partisan rangers, and certainly between conscription officers and partisan rangers, they'd come to a county and say, okay, we're drafting all the men between 18 to 35, and all of a sudden everybody would be like, well, I'm a partisan ranger, you can't draft me. Uh, eventually they make it so uh, partisan rangers had to be people outside of the age range uh, because they feared that this would just disrupt, the, the, make it impossible to really enact the conscription successfully. There, there are so many conflicts that come up within the Confederacy that the, uh, and you have so many quotes from people saying, all we need to do is just get rid of these unfair exemptions, get everybody in the army, and then everyone says, except, of course, my own doctor who I need, or my own overseer who I need, or uh, some, some pers, there's always a good exemption for me, but everybody else needs to go. Uh, There's more to the story. We'll take another short break. We'll come back and talk more about Confederate conscription and the struggle for Southern soldiers. That's the book by John M. Satcher, who is our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with John M. Satcher, author of Confederate Conscription and the Struggle for Southern Soldiers. We've been talking about how the draft worked in the South during the Civil War. Uh, so many, the, the, the eternal conflict, uh, you want everyone in the army, uh, but you also have to leave enough people at home to, to grow the crops for the army and to 
continue to, to maintain order and prevent rebellions from the enslaved working force. Uh, you can't have it both ways. The, the John, you mentioned that one of the many loopholes, the creation of partisan ranger units that were supposed to be home defense, but also make a convenient exemption from getting drafted. There was another uh, example where, where you have a, a conflict between uh, the conscription bureau that's trying to round up conscripts and the army itself. This one taking place in the Western theater and it brings up uh, General Gideon Pillow. Most of us remember him from, from Fort Donaldson days. You refer to this uh, conflict at one point as the pillow fight, and I, I <laughs> could not, I, you could not resist that. <laughs> so, uh, I tried, but I could not resist saying <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, the, the pillow fight is, is in which General Pillow is given authority to, to conscript, uh, to round up civilians and turn them into soldiers where, where the Army of Tennessee happens to be. Now, the Confederate central government conscription bureau is trying to do the same thing and they've given exemptions as, as we've been talking about for for plantations of a certain size certain occupations pillow just walks in and says you you and you you're coming with me um no exemptions granted for anybody and he he gets thousands of, of recruits this way they're not happy recruits but uh he's, his men almost come to blows with the conscription officers who are trying to round up men uh, it's like the the confederacy has become worst enemy yeah to me it was a fascinating aspect i'd never heard about um so you're right conscription while army officers and forces enrolling officers are army officers it's run through the war department so it's run through a civilian bureau and the idea is that if a civilian bureau runs through it, this enables you to have exemptions. It enables you to go to court, to, you have a writ of habeas corpus. And so when you put the civilian structure over it, that was one of the ways that from the start, Jefferson Davis and those people who talked about conscription making a military despotism, they said, no, no, this is actually protecting personal liberty. Well, mm -hmm. you can either at that point, you're sacrificing some efficiency. Um, General Pillow was more than happy to... Um, be more efficient and sacrifice some of that personal liberty. So when they changed the law in 1863, they, they said basically army units could go home and they, they anticipate army units go home and they'd use persuasion to say, hey, you know, look at this, our units here, you need to come join the men from your, your town. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it was written in a way that enabled basically uh, General Pillow to operate a press gang. He could just bring his men in there. It didn't have to be their own town. And he could look at your papers and basically say, no, this is an invalid exemption. You are not sick enough to, you know, you're not actually a miller. You're not actually whatever it is and force people into the army. So yes, at some point, the conscription bureau basically says that its biggest opponent in enforcing conscription is the army, which sounds ironic to us. One of the many <laughs> ironies here. Yes. So, and they, the, the people in Washington are politicians, and they have Davis's ear. Davis did believe that this should be protecting personal liberty, and um, Pillow eventually does lose his pillow fight um, and is reassigned to command. But yes, it's this sort of, you wouldn't expect tension between the Army and the Conscription Bureau, uh, but there was undoubtedly there, both in 1863, and then again, they have generals of reserves in 1864 and early 1865 who take over the oldest and the youngest people, and again, they are circumventing the camps of circumventing the camps of instruction and just putting people into the army. 
When you're talking there, I think you you had a slip of the tongue and said Washington instead of Richmond. Yes, but, sorry. But I think that. I think that's significant though that 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 this is just what the many Confederates feared about Richmond becoming a central uh, tyranny as they perceived Washington was becoming. Uh, so so I think it's a you know you've been with the source material a long time and that that's a very uh, revealing slip uh, and, and an accurate one the um, one of the the options that comes up by 1864 and, and as things are getting desperate uh, you mentioned earlier that, that the age limit gets expanded now it's 17 to 50 uh, Davis proposes at one point drafting literally every male in that range no exemptions at all not for health not for anything and then detailing individuals what can you explain the difference between detailing and exempting people yes and i think part of that goes back to the difference between draft and conscription which okay. are often used interchangeably i mean we're obviously mm-hmm. let's say if we think about the nfl draft we're familiar with picking players and putting them picking people and putting them in the military a right. conscription assumes that everyone is in the uh-huh. NFL and then you're assigned to be a coach or you're assigned to be a fan or you're assigned to be a cheerleader or whatever else it is. So conscription <laughs> puts everybody from 18 to 35 in the army unless there's a reason for them not to be in the army. So the assumption is you're in the army. Mm. Replacing exemptions with detail takes that even to another level. The idea is it, we're not exempting, let's say, teachers um, <laughs> because everyone then becomes a teacher. But if your community right. needs one teacher or two teachers, we're going to put everybody in the Army and then detail two teachers, exactly the number we need. If your community needs one doctor, we're going to leave one doctor at home. We're not going to exempt the five doctors in your community. It doesn't make any sense. So detailing even makes – so talk about a military despotism. And, and, and if you're interested, the, the people who really love Confederate conscription in the 20th century are mm-hmm. military people. The army huh. loves conscription because it <laughs> truly puts the entire population on war footing. And if conscription with exemption puts it's almost there, conscription with details really does because it is now not exempting classes, but individuals in those classes to stay home. Now, did the Congress actually pass that? Well, that no, okay. because Congress, of course, doesn't want to give Davis the power. They, with mm. Congress has the power. Um, so it's partially a fight between the branches of government. The legislative branch says, you know, we're not going to give up this power. Exemptions we control. Details would be controlled by the executive branch, the president, and the secretary of war. So part of it is this feud between Congress and Davis. But there's also the recognition that that is truly as close to military despotism as you can get if you allow the executive branch to control every person, literally down to the individual person. Now, by 1864, again, you mentioned earlier, they do away finally with substitutions and say, even if you bought a substitute or paid someone to go for you, uh, that substitute stays in the army, but you're going too. But the letters that you, you quote, the, these soldiers who are in the army trying to get their, their wives back home to hire a substitute to replace them, they're talking about sums of $1,000, $2,000, $5,000 in 1862 money, 1862 Confederate money. Uh, this is a lot of money, and then when the substitution plan is ended, these people, it, it looks like some of them mortgaged the farm or sold the farm, sold the human labor, did everything to get a substitute, and then they're still right back in the Army. 
Yes. Uh, substitution, when you start in 1862, sub- you think about it, it's, it's a supply and demand issue. It's, it's truly mm-hmm. capitalism here. That's part of the reason the union goes with a commutation fee of $300, because they see what's happening in the Confederacy, where you create this bidding war for substitutes. So in 1862, substitutes would be a reasonable price, but... By 1864, there are fewer and fewer supply because there are fewer and fewer people and men who are not eligible for service. Plus, with the hyperinflation in the Confederacy, you go from a substitute costing in June of 1862 $300, $400, $500 to by 1860, late 1863, a substitute could cost $10,000 uh, or, or somebody would demand gold and not Confederate money at that point. But there is a contract. And so these principals, the men, what they call men who provided substitutes, believe that they had signed a contract and their contract was good for the war. And so what happens is some of this goes into the court system. Now, the Confederate government's idea is that, well, yes, there was a contract, but that was between the substitute and the principal. The Confederate government was not part of that contract. Um, Probably the judge who causes the most problems is from your state there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Richmond Pearson in North Carolina um, is a judge who believed firmly in individual liberty and was happy to decide against the Confederate conscription whenever he could. Um, And he has some cases where he does try to stop uh, the Confederacy from allowing, from forcing principals back into the army. Um, He does that when the Supreme Court of North Carolina is not in session. When it does go back and meet in session, his fellow two other Supreme Court justices consistently outvote him. But the judiciary does have a role as well. And of course, with no national judiciary in the Confederacy, it is the state courts that are involved sometimes in this conscription battle. So, I mean, there are so many layers to this story that are, are not well known. I, I have to ask about the, the last card left to the Confederacy by the spring of 1865, uh, conscripting the enslaved. What Was that ever a serious prospect? Um, I think yes. So as people who follow this know, and there are great books written on this, um, mm-hmm. on, on the a- this aspect of it. Um, 1864, you have this proposal that comes out of the Army of the West saying we, we need to conscript slaves. Um, and in that proposal is suppressed, um, Patrick Cla- Claiborne's proposal. Mm-hmm. But by eight, late 1864, 1865, you know, it, it's a question of math. The has run out of numbers. And so if they cannot find anybody anywhere else, well, they have, you know, 3.5 million slaves that they could use. And if you buy the argument that Confederates bought, that slaves are loyal to their owners, then it makes sense to conscript slaves. And, and then some people in Congress point out the irony that um, plantation owners who were okay with their sons or their neighbors going off to war all of a sudden got really worried that their slaves were going to go off to war. Um, so, as I say, in March of 1865, um, the Conscription Bureau gets um, destroyed, gets uh, basically put out of business, and uh, slaves become conscriptive. But both of those things happen just as the Confederacy is teetering on its last legs. So there are very, very few slaves conscripted, and certainly none that play any role in the war. Uh, you have a interesting chapter in the center of the book that uh, I wish we had more time to talk about in detail about just how this worked out on the ground of, of individuals uh, uh, you know you start with an anecdote of a, a, a conscription unit showing up at a farm and there's mother and children and father you know, all happy and, and a minute later they're dragging father away and the children are crying the mother is hysterical and 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 the soldier in charge of the detail is saying, "Is this? Am I doing the right thing for?" Uh, 
it, yeah. it, I'm, I'm going to leave that there and say, listeners, this is why you want to buy a copy of this book and read it. It's really an interesting chapter. Uh, but I want to jump to the very end and, and, and just ask the, the sort of final question. Uh, did it work? Did, did, did they get men out of this that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten? Um, first, I'd say my chapter four, I'm not sure if we're allowed to have favorite chapters, but that is my favorite chapter of the book. Um, but in terms of your overall question, mm-hmm. I, yes, the short version is, Yes, it worked. Uh, I'm a believer that the Confederacy was defeated by superior Union numbers, um, and that conscription enabled the. It was. It's not a question of why did the Confederacy lose, but why did the Confederacy last as long as it did? And I think without conscription, the Confederacy would not have lasted into 1865. Um, this hopefully does not make anyone think I'm a neo-Confederate or anything like that. It's just no. what I've concluded after reading the after reading all the sources that there was not going to be a better way to mobilize white Southerners than conscription did. So you you give a wide range of numbers, and, and obviously it's impossible to come up with a, a firm number, but if we're looking at a ballpark of, of up to a million Confederate soldiers, how many are, of those are conscripts? 1%, well, 10%? That's, that's, that's the fascinating figure. So the official records would tell you 81,993 um, people are conscripted. Um, that number seems to be ridiculously low for reasons mm-hmm. that I cannot go into here. Um, but as we all learn at some point in our math, another way of looking at something is if it's a percentage is 1 minus the percent that it's not, or 100% minus the percent it's not. I would say the only people you can say were not impacted by conscription were the 90,000 men who volunteered in 1861 for the course of the war. So I would say that conscription affected the decisions of 80 to 90 percent of the soldiers. Now, I would also like to point out that when people say, when I say that, people say, well, that's proving once again that there's not Confederate nationalism. Um, And that's when I point out, well, let's look at the rest of U.S. history. Let's look at World War II. In World War II, 60 percent of soldiers that fought in the U.S. Army were draftees. Um, we don't say that they didn't have U.S. nationalism. I, mean, I think we, we sometimes apply different standards to value judgments, to nationalism. This goes back to you know, David Potter's arguments um, that we just need to look at what happened uh, and not apply value judgments to these things. So in my view, 89% of the soldiers who joined the Confederate Army were impacted some way by conscription, even if it's because they volunteered because they didn't want to be called a conscript. So ultimately, uh, th- there was no other way for the Confederacy to go to get the the personnel they needed, and and it does ultimately have a large impact. Uh, there is there's just a lot of interesting material in this book. Uh, we did gloss over chapter four where you describe the the workings on the ground and listeners uh it's worth the price of admission uh that chapter alone but you'll learn a whole lot more from this book as i certainly did uh the title of the book is confederate conscription and the struggle for southern soldiers uh it is published by lsu press it beautifully produced as all lsu book press books are uh author is john m satcher who's been our guest tonight John, it's been a pleasure talking with you about this. Well, thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.